0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is on the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is November the 22nd, 2021. Um... As always, talking to you from San Francisco, the eyes of America are not on San Francisco. They are elsewhere, uh, for as so often, rather depressing reasons. Um, We're living in the post-Kyle Rittenhouse verdict America. One letter in the New York Times asks what the Rittenhouse verdict says about justice in America. This is a family show, so I probably can't tell you the truth, but it certainly doesn't speak highly of justice. And just browsing the headlines today, there are so many stories every single day about injustice and particularly racial injustice in America. It's astonishing. Uh, there's a story in the New York Times today uh, about four black men wrongly charged with rape or exonerated 72 years later. I mean, that's. Of course, 72 years too late. That's three more ruined lives. Uh, Meanwhile, justice in America is, of course, highly racist and racialized. Um, On my coast, we have the trial of Elizabeth Holmes, who stole millions of dollars, quite clearly, from from her uh, investors, Um, but will no doubt manage to get off. Another headline uh, from the New York Times, again, all just today, Judge Spare's man in teen rape case, incarceration isn't appropriate, surprise, surprise, the young man is white. Um, The closing arguments are underway in the trial of the Ahmed Arbery killing, another horrible lynching, God knows what will happen on that one. Um... And uh, Andrew Cuomo is under investigation in New York for sexual harassment, perhaps even rape, He, you no doubt will get off. Um, we don't hear, unfortunately, enough about these horrible injustices in the system <laughs> on a multiple level every day. And my guest today was, I think, in many ways, the victim of one of these injustices. She has, fortunately, a new book out. Uh, it's called Bending the Arc, My Justice from Prison to Politics. Uh, The author is Kida J. Haynes, and I'm thrilled that Kida is joining us uh, from Nashville, Tennessee. Kida, welcome. Um, All those headlines, do they turn your stomach? I mean, this is just one day. I mean, I'm not looking back further than the weekend. Every day, there's more evidence of the Rottenness of the American criminal justice system.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know. I was, I was looking at that, listening to that as you were talking about that, um, and I did not know about the trial that was happening over there on um, on the West Coast. But like you said, she'll she'll probably get off, and of course she'll, you know, we'll,
0: because she can afford. And it's not our, you know, OJ got off because he could afford good lawyers, but most most African Americans can't afford the kind of lawyers that are. Uh, and Elizabeth Holmes uh, had. Now, Keita, tell me your story because it's what's so shocking about it is how ordinary it is, I think,
1: yes, yeah, so um, so what happened with me was that I was um, a young college student um, in ten- at Tennessee State University, majoring in criminal justice and psychology. And um, met a guy, an older guy, Um, he was from Memphis, said he was here in Nashville doing an internship. And um, we started dating. And after we had been dating for a while, he um, said that, you know, him and his cousins had a family business here in Nashville and Memphis, and asked if I would accept the packages for the, um, the Beepers Plus shop. And they had cell phones as well too, because no one would be at the store at the time that the packages would be delivered from FedEx. So um, I agreed to accept these packages, sign my name for them, and his cousins or his friends would come and pick them up and, you know, take them to this, quote unquote, store. And um, turns out to that none of these packages ever contained um, cell phones and pagers, but marijuana. And so myself, along with 28 other people, were indicted in the Middle District of Tennessee, which is where Nashville is located, um, on various different marijuana and conspiracy money laundering charges. And everybody pled guilty except for myself. And after a five-day jury trial, I was acquitted of six charges and was found guilty of aiding and abetting a conspiracy um, to distribute 100 to 400 kilograms of marijuana, which carries a mandatory minimum sentence in the federal system of at least five years in prison.
0: And how old were you then? How, how many years ago was this, key to- Uh
1: This was back in the early 2000s. And so when I when I met him, I was 19 years old. And when all of this, when I went to court, I, th- I was in my early twenties when when you know the court proceedings eventually started.
0: So tell me about this book. Um, well, we're going to talk a little bit more about your story of how you went from prison to politics. But is the purpose of, of writing this book bending the arc? Um, is it a, a a form of catharsis for you to get this? horrible story out of your system. Clearly, it didn't ruin your life, but it came close to ruining
1: it. It it could have, yes. Um, and I have seen being in prison and then also working as a public defender, how being tied up in this criminal legal system does have the ability to ruin people's lives. Um, and, you know, for me, it was, you know, I've, I've spoken about my life and my story uh, for several years since I've been home, because I've been home since 2006. But, you know, like when we when you posted about Kyle Rittinghouse, you know, that and a lot of people were talking about when that happened last week and over the weekend, how um, it really exemplifies that we have a two tiered system here, one for um, white people and one for black and brown and marginalized communities. And, um, you know, and that is one of the things that I do talk about in the book, because, you know, I was blessed to have a, um, you know, a private attorney. And just seeing all of the things that he did for me versus hearing. Um, the stories from the women about what their federal public defenders did not do for them is really what led me to want to become a public defender, because I said that I wanted to be able to provide the same level of representation that I had to somebody that could only pay $5 for it. Um, so, you know, those things that you posted up there, like I've I've, I've lived it, um, you know, being someone who has personally experienced the criminal legal system. And being um, a former public defender for six and a half years.
0: Uh, Keita, um, you were from a, or you are from a middle class family um, in Tennessee. I think you're from, are you from Franklin originally? Franklin yes. Tennessee? Yes. Yes. Small town, middle class mm-hmm. uh, family. What was it like to go from this middle class family, from being a college student to being incarcerated for something? which um, you clearly were innocent of.
1: Yeah, so it was it was interesting. I mean, because at the time when oh, I you was- used one, that
0: word interesting, Keita. I'm sure there are <laughs> other words you could use to describe Well, that.
1: I mean, I, like you said, this is a family show. <laughs> but well, I'm
0: actually joking. It isn't a family show. So you can tell the truth there about how awful it really was. Yes,
1: it, it, it definitely was. Being someone who had never had any exposure with the criminal legal system at all, to being really thrown into the midst of it, and 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 honestly and truly, like back at that time, people really didn't have much knowledge of the inner workings of the criminal legal system. Like there were certain shows that were on TV at the time, but I, you know we definitely liked the, the knowledge that we have now with how it works, and so you know, just being tossed into this, not having any knowledge of, of how this is working, what to expect, and then also looking at automatically just off top of facing five years because of the mandatory minimums in the federal system. Um, you know, it was, you know, it, it definitely was a horrible situation. Um, you know, I recall a time in the book where I was in the county jail and, you know, th- turned myself in because the, the feds and everybody came looking for me and they had like a SWAT team and helicopters and all of this stuff looking for me. And so we turned myself in and I thought that I was going to be released that day, at least maybe the next day, but I was not released until, A week later, and I was transferred from the county jail in Williamson County to the holding facility at the federal building. So driven maybe about 40 miles, handcuffed behind my back to the federal building, sat in a holding cell all day long um, and then was transferred to another small county jail in Kentucky because the government had filed a motion to detain me and sat in jail for in Kentucky for about four days because, and, and then came back to court and was finally released into my parents' custody. So that experience alone, even before I even had to go to prison, that experience alone was a horrible experience. You know, we all know that county jails tend to be worse, um, you know, than than jails and prisons. And so, like I said, just having no experience with the criminal legal system at all and just being thrown into this and and being, you know, in at this time in my early twenties. When you know, all of us are graduating from college, we are traveling, you know, we are learning who we are and, and I am fighting for my life.
0: What about the impact on your family? It must have been horribly traumatic.
1: Yes, it it really was horribly traumatic for my family. And also there was um so the way that the the um the US attorney and the um you know the marshals, the agents, all of them, the way that they investigated this case is that my um eighty plus year old great grandmother at the time, she had signed for a couple of packages for me because she lived down the street from me and we had mail that would go there all the time. And so she had signed for a package and they hauled my 80-plus-year-old grandmother into the federal building to do handwriting samples. And there was a time when she was in the hospital um, recovering from having surgery from cancer, and they showed up in trying to get into her room in the IC unit at the hospital to try to talk to her. Um, you know, and so these are some of the tactics that they use. They followed me um home from my job. They would sit outside. When I worked at the mall, they would sit in the food court outside the store. They would follow me home. They would park around the corner from my house. I mean, like, you know, they act like I was this huge drug kingpin with all of the things that they were doing, um, you know, and really and ultimately what they were trying to do is that they were trying to break me and trying to break my family. But that that didn't happen.
0: Um, we we had a show recently with uh, Maisha Cherry. She's a um, she's an academic specializing in, uh, African American history and culture, uh, on the case, what she calls the case for rage. She has a new book out, the case for rage, why anger is essential to anti-racist struggle. One of the striking things I think about you and in your book is you don't seem to be angry or at least you've channeled your anger. Were there times where you would just wanted to just beat your head against the wall because of the profound injustice and absurdity of this?
1: Yes, and and you are correct. I did channel my anger. So I channeled all of my anger and bitterness into getting out of prison and then working as a public defender and then the work that i do in the community um you know around criminal justice reform to you know to dismantle this system like that is that is a that is a goal of mine is to dismantle this system because of what i had to experience and i don't want anyone else to have to experience the injustices that i have experienced in this system and so that is where i channel all of my my anger and bitterness and frustration into the work that that i did as a public defender and the work that that i currently do um working in the Community around criminal justice reform. Now,
0: I do want to get to your um, your the, the next chapter, a remarkable chapter in your life about politics. Uh, but you were introduced to me by uh, actually Jonathan Rapping, who um, is the author of uh, Gideon's Promise and an activist when it comes a very prominent activist when it comes to uh, criminal justice. What about the Prison system itself, what did you see inside Kida that profoundly needs to be reformed, even for people who might deserve to go to prison for committing crimes, let alone someone like yourself who was innocent?
1: Well, within the prison system itself, um, you know, I just had this conversation with someone earlier, and she mentioned, she said, Well, you know, we're you know, we all think and are taught that. You know, people go to prison, and that there's rehabilitation there in prison. And she said, in listening to you, you know, there is none. And so that that that's one of the biggest things is that there is no rehabilitation in prison. Um, and and even for people that are released, you know, when we talk about the reentry process, all of that needs to be like completely just reimagined. Um. You know, I I had to fight when I was in prison just to be able to work in the law library um, because they did not want me to work in the law library. They preferred that I take a typing class and, you know, use typewriters when at this time no one was even using typewriters, um, you know, back out, you know, in the free world anymore. And so it was, it was that like, I literally had nothing to do, um, which is how I ended up studying for the LSAT when I was in prison, because I knew I was going to go to law school. And I didn't want to waste that time because I was literally wasting away in prison. And so I had books sent into me so that I could study the LSAT while I was there. And then upon release, you know, I was blessed to have a job two to three days after my release, but that is not the story of a lot of people. And so I had support from my family and friends and, you know, and in the community, but a lot of people don't have that. People that that I was in custody with and even some of my former clients. And and that's why I talk about in the book that, it, you know, I talk about second chance culture and it is really up to us and in, in the communities to be that second chance culture for people who don't have the family support, um, the support of their community. It's up to us as a community to be that so that people actually have an opportunity to define what success means to them when they're released and then to to walk in it. And, you know, and so that's that's one of the things that I'm really passionate about is the reentry phase, because I know that there is no reentry for people that that's leaving jails and prisons.
0: Well, after the break, Keita, I want to talk specifically about that second class, second chance culture in, in terms of your own story and in a broader context. Uh, so we'll be back in, in about a minute and a half. Stay tuned, everyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keen On show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but Lit Hub is. And on their Lit Hub Live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube YouTube Page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenan. We are talking to Keita Haynes, the author of uh, Bending the Ark, My Journey from Prison to Politics, Keita, we can put the lights on, at least metaphorically. So you had this terrible experience, this profound injustice of going to jail. And then you get out and you rebuild your life. Um, The title of the book, Bending the Ark, of course, refers to Martin Luther King and the arc of the moral universe. Um, I assume that you think uh, MLK... Uh, was right on the the natural bending inevitably of that moral universe. Talk to me a little bit about uh, what you learned in prison about that moral universe.
1: So yeah, no. So um, I, I I what I think about that is that nothing bends without us first bending. So it you know that art doesn't bend you know on its own. Like we have to work to push it. We have to do work in order to bend it, and and that's one of the things that I talk about in the book. And that is one of the things. The reason why at the end of the book I say the work continues. Like if you if you look at like a comb or anything, like you have to apply pressure for it to bend. Like nothing bends automatically, and so that I think like that's what my work um, exemplifies is that we have to apply pressure and if we want to see the type of change that we want to see. But, you know, in in prison, there was nothing, there was nothing moral there in prison. Like we were dehumanized in prison. We were not called by our names. We were referred to by the inmate numbers that they gave us. Um, you know, you are strip searched. Um, and if you have never been strip searched before, I cannot even begin to you know, talk to you about how dehumanizing um, that is. And then being a woman that is strip searched, um, you know, on top of that, Um, you know, just the way that you were talked to, we, it was in count time. So I just, I just felt like that we were, we were treated just like, like, I mean, literally just like slaves, like herds of cattle that, that, I mean, like I said, we were we were just numbers. Like we were not people. We were not people that had lives outside of prison. We were not people who had families that loved us. We were not daughters. We were not mothers. We were not sisters. We were not any of those. I was triple zero seventeen zero eleven for almost four years.
0: Kida, uh, earlier today I actually did a conversation with Kyla Schuler. Mm-hmm. uh another interesting book, very different from yours, more academic, the trouble with white women in which she uh, writes a lot about uh, a number of uh, historic uh, African-American uh, activists of one kind. Harriet Jacobs, for example, African-American writer. Um, Francis Allen Watkins Harper as well. Women who fought the system. How dramatically do you think the system has changed over the last 200 years? You're suggesting that being in jail was a form of slavery.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, it's you know, it it, it really hasn't changed. Um, you know, we we're just calling it a different name. I mean, you know, we've we've all seen the movie, um, and you know, Thirteenth. We all know about the Thirteenth Amendment. Um, you know, and and so that's that's why we say that it's a form of slavery, right? Because uh, you know, you you are working essentially for free or for pennies, like. The work that I did in prison, I made 12 cents an hour, but I had to work each and every single day, just like everybody else out and here, you know, regardless.
0: You were obviously in a woman's prison, uh, Keita. What proportion of the inmates were African-American like just now?
1: Um, I mean, we we had about uh, on any given day at the facility where I was at, it was about a thousand women there on any given day, give or take. And I would say it was at least at least half of the population was African-American, if not more than that.
0: Yeah. So it's uh, again, that that sums everything up, given Mm -hmm. given the history of slavery. so anyway, enough enough with all this misery. You've made your point on that front. Uh, you get out, um, and then here's, here we have a headline: "She went to prison for a crime she says she didn't commit." But even if you did commit this crime of helping a of taking the packages of a boyfriend, you didn't, there's no way you should ever have been sent to prison for this. And then you run for Congress. How did you get from prison to running? Uh, for, for Congress, uh, um, public defender, legal advisor, criminal justice reform advocate, and a congressional candidate?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, I, I mean, had anybody asked me growing up if I, you know, what I wanted to do, I never would have said that I wanted to be a politician. Um, even... Two years before that happened, never wanted to be a politician. But working as a public defender, I started to really see the intersectionality of all of these systems, these oppressive systems working together, right? And started to recognize that the criminal legal system doesn't operate in silo. And that by the time my clients had gotten to me, there were so many things that had gone wrong in their lives that nobody was talking about. And so then you start to think well, you know, if people, you know, did have affordable housing if people did have, um, you know, adequate health care? If you know, if you know, we didn't have this school to prison pipeline, um, you know, if people were able to uh, have a job where you know they could be employed and make a living wage, like would they be, you know, coming to me in the criminal legal system? Like, for instance, I talk about one of my clients in the book, um. Young client, I'm reading his warrant, and the warrant says that he um, was caught with cocaine. And so I'm asking if he wants treatment, and he says yes. And I asked him, you know, filling out the paperwork, and I said, okay, well, you know, your drug of, your drug of choice is cocaine. And he says, no, it's actually heroin. And I said, well, you know, you were caught with cocaine. And he says, yes, he says, I have a heroin problem. But I felt that if I started using cocaine, that it wasn't as lethal as heroin and it could be a step down process. And I mean, and what do you do when you hear that? Right. You know, like. Like I had to put my pen down. I was just like, are you kidding me? Because he didn't have the adequate health care to be able to get into drug treatment, you know, like someone else that did have adequate health care. He had to come into the criminal legal system in order to get that. You know, there were so many other different stories, you know, with clients not having jobs, being unemployed or underemployed, you know, the housing crisis, all those types of things. And so, you know, it was it was it was that seeing the intersectionality of all of and those. Did, did, that my that my
0: before, and um Uh, The the interview I did earlier today with Kyla Shula, she also uses this word intersectionality, uh, but more in an academic term. What, What do you mean by that term, intersectionality?
1: So what I mean by the intersectionality of it is that they don't operate in silo, that it's not just one reason why people end up in the criminal legal system. There is a multitude of reasons as to why people end up in the criminal legal system end up seeing me and and so and that's why i don't think that we will ever be able to solve the problems of the criminal legal system and and honestly it can't be reformed it needs to be reimagined and we need to reimagine this system where we are treating people as humans and that we are treating people with the care that they needed and not cages right and so with the when we look at the intersectionality of this and we recognize that 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 the reason why people are doing the things that they're doing, that there are you know other influences in the community that's probably causing this. And if we address those issues, then maybe we may not have as many people coming into the criminal legal system. And so that was the thing. And so I don't think that we can really talk about you know criminal justice reform without talking about housing reform without talking about you know adequate health care without talking about the economy all of those things because i just think that they all work together and we can't and 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 the way that the all of these systems are divine are, are you know have been designed they're they're all are oppressive systems that have oppressed black and brown and marginalized communities and so we can't say that we're going to reform this criminal legal system, but yet we still don't have affordable housing for people, right? We can't say that we want to reform this criminal legal system when people still don't have jobs, when people still don't have adequate health care. And I just believe that, you know, that, that they all work in one and that we, we have to be willing to tackle all of them.
0: Uh, Kida, as I said, you ran for Tennessee's fifth congressional district. I think you ran, was it last year? What happened? How did you do?
1: Yes, so it was last year, and we um, we got 40% of the vote, of, wow, cool. about 40% of the vote, yes. Um, ran against an entrenched incumbent. He's been in Congress, um, and, you know, for 30-plus years. But, you know, it really... I think what it really showed is that people were really people really are looking for change. Like people are are tired of voting for the same wealthy white men that have been running this country as long as you know we have been here. People are ready for change. People are ready for people to be in office and to be in positions of power that's coming from their community. People that understand the the very issues that they are dealing with every single day, and that's going to utilize that, you know, political position in order to effectuate change in their communities.
0: So politics is everything, as you say, and um, I think that uh, Carla Schuller will agree with you. She was rather critical of white women like um, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, even um, Nancy Pelosi. What do you think black women like yourself bring to American politics, a new spirit, a new energy?
1: Yes, exactly. I think black women like myself, we do bring um new spirit, new energy, but we also bring lived experiences that, you know, the Nancy Pelosi's of the world will never be able to speak from, um, you know, Nancy Pelosi will, will never be able to speak from the experience of a black woman. Right. And that's an experience all within itself. And And I even talk about that in the book with being a public defender. And I mean, we all know that the lingo community, that it is a white male dominated community. And so number one, you have to be, you know, good because you're black, you got to be twice as good because you're female. And three times, I had to be three times as good because I was a black female with the felony on my record. And so it's, it's these types of lived experiences that I think that people are wanting, um, you know, people in positions of power to have, because it, it does bring a different perspective and it does bring a different energy. And it also, you know, I think it says that, you know, I, I know where you're coming from. I understand the issues. Like this is not just your community. This is my community. And I'm going to show up in these spaces, number one, in all of my blackness, because that's who I am. And, and then as a female second, and I am going to advocate for those things. And so, yeah, so I, you know, I, I'm excited to see more Black women, um, you know, not only running for Congress, but, you know, we have Black women that are running for a Senate. Um, you know, we have Black women that are running for various different state offices all across the country. And it is something that is, that is definitely needed.
0: We had, uh, last year, we had um, Martha Jones on the show, a historian of the struggle for Black women for voting. And of course, I'm curious as your take on the current state of American democracy when it comes to voting. Uh, Last week we had Nick Oshner, who has an interesting new book out uh, about corruption in in South Carolina, not too far from Tennessee. How worried are you of the future of democracy, particularly with voting rights and the way it seems to have become racialized um, in contemporary America?
1: Well, I mean, you know, we can say that it's becoming racialized, but it always has been, right? And you yes, know, so like
0: rephrase, racialized There's no such word, but I can't think of a better one.
1: Well, and and you know, and so, but I think, and and this is a part of the voting conversation that a lot of people don't talk about, right? And so, you know, in this country right now, we have, you know, what over 5 million people who can't vote because of a felony conviction on their record. And we know that Black, Brown, and marginalized communities are overrepresented in the criminal legal system. And so the communities that are most impacted by felony disenfranchisement are Black, Brown, and marginalized communities, right? And we know where this stems from. Like, when we do the research around felony disenfranchisement, we can you know, tr- literally trace it all the way back to the Reconstruction era. And so every single thing that was put in place to keep black people from voting, to strip the black power has been held unconstitutional from being grandfathered in, you know, to literacy tests, everything has been held unconstitutional except for felony disenfranchisement. It is still legal to disenfranchise people and not allow them to vote because of a felony conviction on their record. And so for me, I think that that is a missing piece of this conversation when we're talking about voting, because to me, that is the ultimate form of voter suppression when people are not allowed to vote simply because of a felony conviction on their record, and it has continued to strip the power from you know from our communities simply because we are overrepresented in the criminal legal system.
0: Well, it's good stuff from Kida Haynes. I don't know it's more than good stuff; it's essential stuff. Bending the Arc: My Journey from Prison to Politics, a must-read. Uh, Kida, congratulations on the book, and congratulations on on, on your remarkable career. I think. Uh, You are going to be somebody that more and more people in America will will be hearing about and hearing from. I I look forward to charting the arc of your career. Uh, What else, in addition to your new book, uh, Kida, should people be reading? I know you're in Nashville, Tennessee at the moment uh, in these strange times. In addition (laughs) to bending the arc, what else?
1: So I think um, we should all be reading The 1619 Project. I think that is so timely. Um, from what what we all saw, um, you know, with uh, you know the all of the mass mandates, all of the, um, you know, what are we teaching our kids in school, and you know, and just all of those things. So I think that that is a it's a very timely book, and I think that, um, you know, it's a history lesson that we all could benefit from learning. And so I think that that's a, a good book. And then also too, right within, I think is another really good book that we should be reading and. Um, you know, particularly, you know, black women, because black women, you know,
0: This is written by Minda Hartz and it's right within how to heal from racial trauma in the workplace.
1: Mm hmm. Because, uh, you know, we are we're in this this moment where we we are discovering the, you know, I'm saying the racial trauma that black women are experiencing in the workplace and 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 the impact that it has on on us in that moment and on us moving forward. And so I do think that that is a very timely book um, as well.
0: Well, your new book, Bending the Arc, My Journey from Prison to Politics, is extremely timely. Uh, Keita Haynes, keep bending that arc. We need yes. you. If you, yes. don't have you, then the arc won't be bent, the arc of justice. Congratulations on the book and on your life, and it's a real delight to have you on the show. I'd love to have you back again in the not too distant future. There's so many other things we didn't talk about. So uh, keep well, Keita, keep safe, and we'll talk again in the not too distant future. Thank you so yes. much. Yes,
1: thank you so much for having me.
0: <laughs> Thanks so much for watching this Keen On show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or or CastBox or Spotify platforms, all major podcast platforms carry the Keen On show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on lit Hub's, uh, facebook live page um i also hope you'll decide to follow me on substack uh, i have uh, a newsletter on substack in which i develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, keen on show and i hope you'll also follow up with me personally uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows, you might email me at a.keen at me.com or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager in fact to have requests, ideas of of people with interesting new books and projects which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keen On. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community, and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.